Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Jamie Rosenberg, Assistant Editor for the American Journal of Managed Care, and during this week's podcast, we'll be sitting down with Dr. Mark Lewis, a GI oncologist at Intermountain Healthcare. In addition to being a practicing oncologist, Lewis has been living with cancer himself after living with a hereditary tumor syndrome that's been passed down in his family, giving him a unique experience that has driven his approach to treating his own patients. During the interview, Dr. Lewis discusses his personal history with cancer, how he's seen the cancer landscape change over the last two decades, and his experience with treating neuroendocrine tumors. Hi, Dr. Lewis. Thanks so much for coming on and speaking with us today. Hi, Jamie. It's great to talk to you and to speak to your larger audience. So I figured to get started, where did you originally get into oncology? Where did this interest spark from? Um, what's kind of your background, how you got into this field? Sure. I mean, as a, as a spoiler alert, it's a bit of a, a sad story. I think tragedies are, are fairly common, unfortunately, in oncology. And what happened with my family is we were actually moving to the United States in the 1980s. And when you immigrate, you're required to get a chest X-ray as a public health concern. They're trying to exclude uh, immigrants having tuberculosis. And my father, who at the time we thought was in good health at age 42, um, had a very abnormal chest X-ray. So he didn't have TB, but he had a mass occupying his entire right lung. And so almost as soon as we arrived in the States, he required uh, surgery for that, and it was a cancer. Uh, We were told at the time somewhat imprecisely that it was a a lung cancer, and we'll um, flesh out my family story a little bit more later. But needless to say, the surgery was not successful in completely removing that, so he then required radiation to the tumor that was remnant in his chest. Um, And after several years, the tumor spread. It metastasized uh, chiefly to his bones, which was incredibly painful. Um, He passed away when I was 14 years old. And so that was my freshman year in high school. I think it's a time, uh, a formative time for lots of people in their education in particular. And so I realized, you know what, oncology is really something that uh, I would like to do. And, and largely, I was shaped by my father's who onco- oncologist, who was just a wonderful, uh, caring physician. Not only was he in- intelligent, um, he clearly was invested in my father's well-being and even our family and sort of uh, took me under his wing. I got to work in his clinic every summer through high school and college and worked my way up uh, through the ranks at various physicians. Uh, and then on to medical school. And, and I tried you know, all the rotations in medical school, they sort of make you uh, deliberately, you know, try your hand at everything, but there was nothing that spoke to me more than oncology, and that's the field I uh, ended up entering. And I don't regret it one bit. I think that there's been so much progress since my father's death. Um, really, my only regret is I can't go back and share a lot of these uh, advances uh, with him. That actually made me think, because you've had experience with oncology for so long from your dad, and interning and having this long experience with oncology, how is it for you looking back and kind of through the years of how different the cancer landscape is now compared to how it was back then? Yeah, I mean, almost every aspect of his uh, management would be uh, different. Um, I think that the best answer to your question is that we're getting more um, discriminating. Uh, We're getting more precise. I think chemotherapy in particular, you know, deservedly developed a bad reputation as causing a lot of 
what we would call off-target toxicity, so people losing their hair, becoming incredibly nauseous, having suppressed immune systems. Um, and again, none of these are really an attack on the malignancy itself. Uh, they're all sort of collateral damage on the patient. And so while a lot of those things do still happen, thankfully the side effect profiles of drugs have improved over time. And a lot of the other medications that we use to alleviate symptoms like nausea um, have also improved. Um, our sort of governing body, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, recently evaluated sort of the five greatest advances in oncology in the last 50 years, and one of them was anti-nausea medicine. So now when I'm counseling a patient in my practice, I tell them there's actually a really good chance, even during chemotherapy, that they won't vomit, and that I'll certainly make every preemptive effort to prevent that from happening. And there have been similar advances in making surgery less invasive and making radiation more focused. And so I think in all the oncologic disciplines, the real trend, thankfully, has been towards uh, precision. The other place that we're seeing more precision is in diagnosis itself. So cancer is really an umbrella term for, frankly, hundreds of different diseases. And one of the phrases I hear a lot these days, which I think is true, is we're trying actually to make every cancer a rare cancer. So it is inexact uh, even to talk about all breast cancer in the same way. It's really a cluster of, of different diseases. And in the cancers I treat now in my practice, which are gastrointestinal malignancies, even in the colon, we treat uh, cancers that arise on the right side of the colon differently than cancers that arise on the left, believe it or not. So there's a lot of nuance. And I think that, again, that fits with the overarching movement towards more precision, both in uh, treatment and in diagnosis. Oh, yeah, definitely. And just so um, our listeners have a little more background, so do you mind just mentioning where you work now and kind of your focus? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a medical oncologist. Um, that's my uh, interest. And specifically, I treat cancers of the gut. So I'm the director of gastrointestinal oncology for Intermountain Healthcare in Utah. So we are a um, actually multi-state healthcare network. We have lots of hospitals and clinics across uh, Utah into Idaho in some adjacent states, and so we really treat a region. Uh, and my goal is not just to have my own clinical practice, but to try to synchronize our efforts in this field across this sort of wide geographic expanse, and it's been extremely rewarding. One of the things I really enjoy is um, connecting with patients who can't come to my clinic physically. We can still reach out to them by uh, telehealth, virtual communication, and that sounds almost uh, science fiction and maybe even um, it sounds a little careless, but we actually are still able to give chemotherapy even at a great distance, um, provided we have people on the ground that can monitor the infusions and the safety of the patients. And so, again, I think oncology is also shifting to a model of uh, trying to bring care as close to home as possible. There's still always going to be a place for sort of magnet centers. I used to work at MD Anderson, and it was common for people to come from around the United States, if not around the globe, to get um, sort of the latest research there. But in terms of standard of care oncology, we really are trying to deliver it into the community uh, and bring it to the patients as much as we can. Right. And so now, as you're working as an oncologist, you're also currently living with cancer. So do you mind talking a little bit about your journey on this end, how you found out about your diagnosis, how long it's been, and where you are with the diagnosis now? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. I appreciate your concern. So when my father died in 1994, it just seemed like terrible bad luck. His father before him had died in his late 60s of sort of a mysterious cancer that arose in his chest. He was actually a minister and he became unable to preach because this was affecting his 
his voice and his strength. And so I always knew that my paternal grandfather had passed away from some, you know, unspecified thoracic malignancy. And my father, as I mentioned, had um, not actually a, a lung cancer, but uh, what's called a thymic cancer. So the thymus is this little immune organ that sits just behind our breastbone. It serves virtually no purpose in adulthood. It's really only useful to our immunity in childhood. Um, and so it's almost frustratingly vestigial that this organ, which was no longer helping my father, would then give rise to his cancer. So it turns out he had this rare cancer. Then my paternal uncle died of a very rare tumor in his pituitary gland. So sort of three different rather wow. esoteric uh, cancer diagnoses in the family. And then finally, literally as I was starting my training in oncology, I still had no inkling that there was a hereditary link. Um, I developed a high calcium level. And that may seem completely unrelated, but there's very few conditions that cause high calcium in consecutive generations. And I knew that was something that my dad had struggled with, uh, even though I no longer had access to his medical record. So I sort of had this eureka moment where I realized that you know, these weird tumors and then this two successive generations of high calcium really meant that this was a pattern. And that pattern is called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, literally meaning multiple endocrine glands affected in consecutive generations in what's called an autosomal dominant inheritance. And so I could trace it back retrospectively to my father, to my paternal uncle, to my paternal grandfather. All of them went to their graves having no idea this was in the family. Uh, and then I basically diagnosed it in myself, and it just it, everything then sort of clicked. It made total sense, and the timing was so interesting because I was, again, just starting my training. So I've literally seen my entire oncology career through the prism of also uh, being a patient. I was extremely fortunate in my um, circumstances. I was doing my training at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, so I had access to incredible care. I had wonderful surgeons. I sort of started having uh, operations associated with this condition at the same time I was learning about cancer in my professional life. And so those things have always been essentially inextricably uh, intertwined for me. And it's really shaped my whole um, identity as a physician. Oh, I'm sure. So do you mind talking a little bit, a little bit more about that? How I think you really have a unique experience as someone living with cancer, but also treating cancer. So has this changed your mindset on how you approach care for your patients? Yeah, it's interesting. One of the buzzwords you also hear these days is shared decision-making, and you'd like to think that we've always done that in medicine. Um, the truth is, for many years, the dominant paradigm was paternalism, meaning that if you had cancer and you came to my clinic, I'd walk into the exam room, you know, tell you, you know, my prescription, and that would be that. There was uh, sadly not as much solicitation of a patient's preferences and values. And so increasingly that conversation has um, sort of become the norm as, as it should be. And I think, again, there's been a real recognition of the trade-off that happens in uh, cancer. So I've been very lucky. I've not required um, chemotherapy yet. I, I could someday. Uh, but I've actually negotiated a trade-off myself. And you know, two years ago, I required a, a really major operation to uh, remove um, part of my pancreas. And that removed my most threatening tumor, but left other smaller tumors behind. And I knew that I was doing that because I wanted to retain some of my pancreatic function. I was concerned that if I had my whole pancreas removed, even if it eliminated all malignant potential, um, I thought it might interrupt my career. It was certainly going to affect my lifestyle. I'd instantly become a brittle diabetic uh, with no insulin or ability to regulate my blood sugar. And so that was not a trade-off that I was 
uh, willing to make. And so I think right. patients actually, considering chemo, have to make a, a similar decision as to whether or not they are willing to undertake the toxicity of chemotherapy, which still exists, for a not promised but projected uh, improvement in their survival. And so I think there's a balancing act there between the duration of life and its quality. And I think, thankfully, that conversation um, is happening more and more often in oncology clinics. Yeah. And as you mentioned, your dad passed away from a hereditary tumor syndrome and passed it on to you, and you in turn passed it on to your son. So now we also hear an increased emphasis being placed on genetics and recognizing and diagnosing hereditary cancers. Is this a syndrome that would have benefited from genetic testing had you known about this prior? And what are your thoughts on this increased emphasis being placed on um, genetics and hereditary cancers? That's a great question. So what's so interesting is that we figured out the code for the human genome uh, you know, in the late 1990s, but that just told us what normal looks like. It hasn't actually told us all the ways in which the genetic code can go wrong. And so we're actually still iteratively in the process of figuring that out. As it happens, even if I had gotten smarter about my family pattern earlier, the genetic test for my specific mutation didn't exist before 2007. And it's amazing how quickly uh, we're learning, um, again, what flaws lead to what syndromes. And so while the genetic testing exists now, um, it did not then. And even now, it's, it's probably not quite complete, meaning there are some people that could carry the same mutation I do, but quote-unquote test negative, and that would be a false negative. I think what's really fascinating beyond rare syndromes like mine is the advent of genetic testing and more common cancers. So for instance, you know, the testing of women with breast and ovarian cancer for BRCA, uh, the same mutation that most famously affected uh, Angelina Jolie, and I you know, admired her courage in, in publicizing that. Um, and actually, just as of this year, our new recommendation is that anybody diagnosed with pancreas cancer, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, also get tested for BRCA. And what we're finding is not the majority, but a small and substantial minority of patients with pancreas cancer are also carrying the BRCA uh, mutation. So it's not exclusively associated with breast and ovarian cancer. And so I think we are seeing what's a, what I would call a tip of the iceberg phenomenon, where a single cancer diagnosis is actually revealing uh, a family's predisposition, and it's allowing people to intervene earlier. You mentioned my son. You know, thankfully, so far, he's actually been completely asymptomatic uh, from his disease. But since we know that he carries mutation, uh, my wife and I, she's a pediatrician, so I'm very lucky in many respects, we're able to follow him uh, you know, prospectively and proactively and really protect his health as much as we can. And so I think that's incredibly valuable for people to know ahead of time if their carriers of mutation are affected by hereditary uh, syndrome so they can uh, plan ahead accordingly. So as a GI oncologist, you have a focus on neuroendocrine tumors, which are also pretty rare and have historically had few treatment options and are sometimes harder to diagnose if they don't present with symptoms right away or they're kind of general symptoms. How does this pose a challenge to providers in this subset of cancer? Yeah, you're right that you know, traditionally neuroendocrine tumors have been very rare. There's an interesting um, balance there between incidence and prevalence. And so the good news about neuroendocrine tumors is that patients with them tend to live for quite a long time. And so even if they're not even if new diagnoses are not occurring very rapidly, the fact that people are living longer means they actually end up becoming quite prevalent. So that's been an interesting phenomenon to witness is that, you know, cancers that people can um, endure 
then actually become more common in the population. So at this moment, there's probably, you know, at least 100,000 people, if not more, living in the United States with neuroendocrine tumors of various types. And so um, that's been uh, really um, fascinating and, and encouraging uh, to see those numbers swell. But I think the other part of your question is getting at a problem we have in oncology with breadth. And what I mean by that is, you know, my prior practice, I didn't just treat GI cancers. I treated breast cancers. I treated lung. I treated disorders of the blood and bone marrow. And I realized in that clinic that it was incredibly difficult to maintain both that diversity and depth. And so I am very fortunate in my position that I get to just drill down on a single sort of group of tumors even there, there's a lot to know, and thankfully, we're making a lot of progress, and that body of knowledge is constantly expanding. But I think oncology is shifting more and more towards sub-specialization. And so, for instance, in my practice, I work with doctors who treat only breast cancer. We have another specialist who treats only lung and head and neck cancer, and another gentleman that treats only genitourinary cancer, like prostate and kidney. And I think that's really where the field is shifting um, in terms of care delivery, it's been like that for a while in academics. Academics have been very niche in terms of how research is done. It's very rare now that a project would just be done on all cancer. It's almost always done in a much more refined subset. But I think that's where the practices are shifting. And again, back to my earlier point about how we reach out to patients, in that manner, even if you're a subspecialist who's geographically located a long way from a given patient, you can still reach them uh, virtually, and that can include both you know, a telehealth consultation, but also online. I'm a big believer that sort of the ivory towers of academic oncology have started to crumble, and uh, I think mostly for the better, we're having much more transparent, open conversations with patients. I really enjoy uh, social media for that purpose. I know there's downsides to every technology, but I think on the whole, we're in the middle of a information explosion where the playing field is getting leveled. And even if you, again, are dealing with a very rare diagnosis, it's not that difficult, thankfully, now to find someone uh, in the world, uh, in the United States, possibly even in your state, uh, who has specialty interest in your specific disease. And so even though the field is becoming, again, a, a sort of aggregate of a lot of smaller subspecialties, um, the access to that specialty knowledge is actually becoming much more um, democratized and uh, widespread. Do you think on the research end or clinical trials, there needs to be more research done or clinical trials being set up, studying these different kinds of tumors? Yeah, you know, aside from just pure luck, most of the progress in oncology has actually been quite deliberately the product of research. And I think one thing I would like to do is, you know, not have research be um, a dirty word. I think there's still a notion of doctors making patients, you know, guinea pigs. Um, I'm a firm believer that for some patients, clinical trials are not just the last thing you should consider. There are actually some conditions where it should be the first thing you should consider. Now, that's not, again, true for everybody, but there's some patients who have such rare diseases and their management, their proper management is so unclear that we really need a clinical trial to answer uh, that question. Again, I think that requires a whole additional level of, of trust that you can only really cultivate face-to-face with the patient. I think, you know, it's it's scary enough to be diagnosed with cancer. And back to my earlier experience as a patient, I do understand what I call the tinnitus of terror, which means in the first visit, it's very difficult to hear anything other than uh, 
the word cancer. Beyond that, everything sort of becomes this sort of dull drone, and it's difficult to retain all the information. And then you're literally putting your life in the hands of your of your physician at that point. So to go beyond that and have that same doctor propose doing what is essentially an experiment, I think does require an additional leap of faith. But I think it's important that we explain to our patients that you know, the status quo in oncology, while we've made a lot of progress, is still completely unacceptable. And we want to do better. We want our patients to live longer and more fulfilling lives. And the only way that we're really going to get there, and it does take a big collective effort, um, is through research. I think there's a, a two-way street there. I think patients need to realize that by participating in studies, they might not individually benefit. The benefit is uh, often only seen uh, in aggregate and over time. But also, I think as researchers, we owe patients um, information back. I think some of the way that results have been disseminated uh, to patients has been very piecemeal. Um, I think if you participate in a study, you deserve to know the outcome of that study, and I don't think the results should be hidden from you, say, behind a paywall in the medical literature. And so one of the things we're working on uh, here and in some national research organizations is greater transparency, which, again, over time, I think will foster uh, more trust. Again, we, we have work to do, and, and really what we're doing is you know reaping what we've sown. The treatments of the past have been so difficult for patients to tolerate, and I think people have seen that you know both personally and in their families and have sort of cast oncology as a, a very um, unpalatable field. But really, for the most part, you know, I can attest personally that as a patient, I've received excellent care, and I know all the people I work with are just really in good faith trying to push things forward. You know, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, we need them. We need them to develop new drugs. And I realize there's a lot of revenue generated off cancer patients, but that doesn't mean that everything that we do is is driven by uh, greed or that we're, you know, in cahoots with pharma. We really just want things to get better for our patients. It's hard to go to clinic every day and realize that you're still underserving this population. Oh, definitely. And something you mentioned that stuck out to me was the idea of transparency, because we hear a lot about that now, and a lot of people have distrust in the system or don't feel like it's transparent. So do you think that with this increased attention for transparency now in the healthcare system, we're going to be heading in the right direction? I I do, and and frankly, it's one of the reasons I've been so exhibitionist about my own um, care is that, you know, if there was a better way of treating cancer, there was, you know, less invasive, less toxic ways of doing it, you know, frankly, I would have been a coward and and taken that myself. But, you know, unfortunately, some of our diagnoses still require very difficult treatment. In my case, it was a a massive surgery. In the case of many of my patients, it's still chemotherapy. Um, So again, I think being, you know, honest that we we have a current standard of care, but we know that it's not nearly good enough, um, I think will go a long way. Again, I think paternalism is toppling. I think the notion of a doctor that's completely omniscient or infallible is uh, no longer, should, should, should no longer be promulgated. Um, and I think there's, while that might erode some people's faith in, in coming to the oncologist, I hope that in the long run, it uh, allows a more open dialogue and allows us to admit that with our patients, we need to get better together. Great. Well, that's all the questions I had for you. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about or discuss about your journey, um, your experience, anything that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, I'd just say in closing that um, I really do want to leave listeners with a with a message of hope. I, again, reviewing the quarter century uh, since my father passed, I see only progress. Again, I know it's not nearly good enough for everybody dealing with cancer right now in 2019, but 
um, how far we've come in the last 25 years makes me so confident about how we're going to do in the next 25 and beyond. And again, I'm invested in this too, just uh, not only as a patient, but as a parent. My son has a tumor syndrome, so I'm very passionate about making his future as bright and healthy as possible and feel the same way about all my patients. And so again, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to your audience today, Jamie. Of course. Thank you so much in sharing your story. I really appreciate it. For more, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. You can get in touch with us by emailing info at AJMC.com or by following us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And finally, if you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.